economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me are our hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Levi Russell, and my fellow graduate assistant, Jacob Michael. All right, so today we have a, uh, another interview guest. Um, we have Dr. Jeremy Jackson, uh, who's a professor in, at North Dakota State University in their uh, economics department. Jeremy has some interesting research on uh, using the economic freedom of the 50 states data, which is similar to the economic freedom of the world index that our namesake, Jim Gortney, uh, started years ago to, at the country level. This data is at the state level. And so I thought it would be interesting to have Jeremy on to kind of discuss his, his work uh, using this data and, and the things that he has been able to sort of tease out of those, out of that, that type of data. And so I think maybe what we'll do is we'll start um, here with our first half. Um, we'll talk about one of the papers and then we'll maybe talk about the other one in the second half. And so Jerry, welcome. And I think if you, if you could just give us like a, a short um, description of kind of your research program in general, and then maybe talk to us about this, uh, your paper, Free to be Happy, Economic Freedom and Happiness in the in U.S. States. Sure. Um, my my own take on research is uh, I'll I'll work on anything that's interesting, and so I I, I got started. And this is not the key to being famous, by the way, but the key <laughs> to, to perhaps mm-hmm. having a, a a meaningful relationship with your own research. Yeah, some sanity. Yeah. So the paper that you just mentioned it, it actually came came later than the other ones that we're going to talk about. But I, I started down a path that that got me thinking into what are the social effects of economic freedom. We ha- there, it's well documented many of the more you know non-social effects of economic freedom and the relationship between economic freedom and growth in particular. So I I, I got down this path uh, of looking at more social measures and what is the impact of economic freedom on them. Um, and it's it's broadly a part of an overall research um, paradigm that I have looking at the role of institutions in general. But I think of economic freedom as being a measure of a certain type of, of institutions. And it's led into a bigger research program, actually, um, on well-being in general. So I'm, Yeah, give our I'm, listeners a little bit on the social effects. Is it like self-reported happiness or, or something? What, uh, what social sure. effects? Just a couple little snippets. Well, in, in this particular paper that, that Levi mentioned, correct, it's looking at a survey response to a question in the general social survey of given things in general, how happy would you say, are, say you are these days? And then respondents can give actually one of three responses um, in the general social survey. And then I, as Levi mentioned, I, I used the economic freedom of the states as an explanatory variable. And you know, that particular study uh, you know, ended up being fairly nice 
partly because I was able to use a panel of data, which in, in some of these papers, the, the, the data is not always organized in, in a nice panel setting. That's one of the great things about the economic freedom of the state's data and the economic freedom of the world data as well is that they go back quite a bit into history, which is, allows you to do quite a bit. But not surprised. So are the are yeah are the Texans and Florida Floridians more happy than the California New Yorkers? <laughs> That's the big question, I guess. And and my Minnesotans. I told you about my Minnesota heritage. So they're yeah. I know they're a little low on the economic freedom of the states, if I remember right. Well, and I, I don't you know I I didn't do an exhaustive comparison of which state is the happiest. <laughs> but I did find that there were some pretty significant correlations with the economic freedom measures. Hmm. So your more free states are generally going to have people reporting higher levels of happiness. There, there are definite debates in the literature on how to measure happiness appropriately and whether or not using average measures of happiness is, is appropriate. Um, the research in, in the, the article that we're discussing actually used both individual measures of happiness and taking averages in a state and found consistent, consistent results, whether the unit of analysis was the individual or a state average. One of the interesting things, though, was that um, different components of economic freedom seem to influence those differently. But there, there's some other methodological issues that I'm, I'm going to try to not go down those yeah, right get down that sure. rabbit hole. So, so with that, so with these components of economic freedom, so what was the what was the most important, uh, or what had the the strongest correlation to happiness of those components of economic freedom? Right. So for for individuals, if we look at the different components, the size of government component and the labor market freedom component, component were the most significant for individuals. Hmm. Um, but actually all three components had, had, some, had statistically significant effects. It's a different story when, we, when, we, when, I go, when I transitioned into looking at state averages, but most of that difference is, is because it, it actually uses a dynamic, a dynamic panel method and so that, that, that completely changes most of, of the, uh, the statistics behind it. Did you look at religion at all in any of that, since this is faith and economics? I know some, some of those studies look at religiosity, I think they call it, in terms of like, you know, how, how much do you go to church or something, and then other denominations. I was just curious if, if that was a part of uh, state studies, if that fell in, or if you've heard of other research like that. No, this particular paper did not did not look at religiosity at all. And the you know the GSS as a data set is very comprehensive. Um, so there there are some questions in there on religiosity. I I designed it using controls that that were consistent with other literature. Um, and and the religiosity wasn't wasn't part of the the literature that I looked at. So, so I can't say anything about that, in, at least right. in this research. Yeah. Interesting. But so, so one of the things you mentioned was the labor market freedom being more correlated with happiness. And so when we think about labor market freedom, so, I mean, size of government, I mean, we kind of understand what that is, right? That's like 
you know, how much government spending is of the gross state product or, or whatever, something like that. Yeah, let's not go too fast on that for our listeners. So right. uh, state spending versus state gross domestic product or state income uh, listeners. So gross domestic product being the collection of everybody's income essentially in the state. And so how much of that is the state doing and spending? Is that how that measure works, Jeremy? The, yeah, the state, the size of government is largely based upon measuring how much, how much spending is happening by, by the state. Mm-hmm. Your labor market freedom, on the other hand, is going to be based partly upon unionization rates. Oh, okay. But also, oh. but also on on differences in in minimum wage policy. So it has it has both of those things. So the number of workers that are a member of a union or something, essentially, of, of the labor force. Yep. Something along it, those lines. Like the percentage of the labor force that's a member of a union. Huh. And is that it, or is it uh, an index of some other things too, like whether oh, minimum, state minimum wage? Or it, ha- it has minimum like wage in it too. Correct. Okay. Yep. So. In other words, the idea would be that states with lower minimum wages or, you know, that don't, I guess, push above the federal minimum wage or states that had less unionization were more happy. That's basically what you were finding, right? Correct. Hmm. Okay. So the logic of $15 minimum wage, according to that study, right. would say if you want to be less happy, do it, but otherwise don't. Yeah, and is I, that the what the layman is supposed to pick out, or maybe even the the quarterback economist here? Right. <laughs> well, that's what I think is kind of interesting about happiness stuff is is you know like I my 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 issue with it is is that it's like well what do you mean by happiness? Because then you're asking this question about this word, and then everybody defines it differently, which is different than measuring like you know my income. Well, my income. I mean, everybody can state their income in the same units, right? But I guess at the same time you know, in, in economic theory, we don't really value the money. We value the stuff we buy with the money. And, you know, if Russ buys different things than I do, then I guess even by telling you our income, we're telling you different things because it's about our subjective perception. So maybe that's not really much of a critique of the whole idea of measuring happiness. I don't know. Well, this is, this is one of the fundamental challenges. Um, economists have always, you know, I shouldn't say always, we've tended to focus at least most recently on things that are most easily measured. Right. Income, right. economic growth, these are things that we can measure precisely. But something like happiness, which is inherently subjective. In fact, happiness is considered a subjective well-being measure. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I can't, you know, by, by, the, by, by the time I define happiness, I'm already pigeonholing you in a number of ways. Um, you know, I, I like to think of a world in which we're all free to define our own utopia. I don't want to define utopia and what's going to make you happy for you. So, so, so that's one of the things that I do like about the subjective well-being measures like, like this one is that it allows you to think of your best and your best world. Right. Uh, and, and I don't have to, as a researcher, impose it on you. And so maybe the, the reason why uh, more labor market freedom or uh, you know, less government spending would increase happiness would just be that people have more control over their own, their own destiny or whatever. And so then that, that would push their happiness up because they're free to pursue what they want instead of being locked into like certain programs or being locked out of the labor market, you know, when they're really young because the, the minimum wage is too high or, or something like that. My wife was just telling a story related to that of a, 
a Muslim uh, client that she has that is needing to go back to Saudi Arabia and how much she's enjoyed the freedom that she has in the United States, despite when she goes back to Saudi Arabia, she's treated like a princess, but oh, she yeah. literally can't do anything. Right. And so the dignity of work and the value of your freedom, staying covered up when she goes outside, of course, and other things we take for granted, even though everything is, she's treated like a princess and, right. and almost worshiped, if you will. Um, she really enjoyed her time in the United States with the freedoms that we have, even though she had to quote unquote, do more work, you know, and she wasn't treated in, in that type of status. So I think that's a little bit about what we try to dig into with the research and see if we can figure out if this freedom and liberty stuff has, has that kind of weight or does it, what boundaries does it have? So, right, right. And, and your your intuition there, Levi, is, is very consistent with the psychology literature that's found that that people, when they perceive that they have control of their own lives, have have higher higher rated happiness. Okay. You know, as an economist in general, though, I tend to think the bigger we we, we do constrained optimization. Well, the bigger your choice set, the right. higher the higher utility. You know, in a standard utility maximization model. This, the, the higher utility should be. So I, I seem, seem to think that anything that gives you higher, higher degrees of choice should allow you to make yourself happier. Right. So then if we put the constraint of God in a faithful life, we are made worse off. And that looks like a great place for a break. And we'll uh, pick up with that tantalizing discussion uh, after the break. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Levi or Russ today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysex.org. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at courtneyinstitute.org. Okay, so when uh, we left for a little break here, we were at a cliffhanger of sorts where entering God into the picture creates constraints and gives us less choices. Uh, the sinful ones are gone. So Paul says, go and sin no more. And I'm thinking, well, what fun would that be? You know, Christ enters uh, the picture and and now we're less happy, according to economic theory, because of some constraints on our behavior. So I'm not sure I agree with that, but it sure is fun to tee it up. Let's see, <laughs> Levi's, Levi's scratching his beard already, so he's got something. Well, yeah, I think this is interesting. I, I had read, and this was maybe a psychology study, 
but I had read something about people who have kids versus people who don't have kids. Mm. And there was some kind of like happiness measure for those two groups. And the people without kids said that they were happier. And so, you know, the news article or, or, you know, the online magazine article was, you know, don't have kids because they just make your life harder and blah, blah, blah. You're not going to be as happy. And, you know, I mean, I have three kids, you know, one of them is quite young and the oldest one is seven. And so, you know, to me, it's like, does it restrict my choices and does it keep, you know, does, does, do these three kids keep me from doing things that I would otherwise be able to do? Yes. Do they use up my time? Yeah, of course they do. <laughs> but, but the thing is like, I can't imagine my life without them. Like, I mean, it's so, I, I just get so much joy out of being with them. And, and so I just kind of, I think about, I think it was Jim Buchanan's book. I can't remember the title of it right now off the top of my head, but it was about, you know, should economics be centered around this idea of like maximization or should it be centered around this idea of, of exchange and, and trade? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that book has an interesting critique and I'll put it in the show notes, but has an interesting critique of this idea of like, you know, people as sort of engineering problems in our head. And really, I think his, his idea was that, you know, maybe we should center, you know, economics around exchanging things. Praxology, I think. Yeah, uh, praxeology. Praxeology. Yeah, the Austrian guys talking about that Mises stuff. might have brought up. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, I mean, I, I just think that, that maybe that kind of fits into the discussion that maybe, you know, in some cases, this maximization model just doesn't work very well, you know, when we're talking about certain <laughs> things. So, what, what do you think about that, Jeremy? A couple of things. One sure. thing... I think the, the literature on happiness says that, that uh, children are investments in long-run happiness. Oh, okay. So there's, there's differences in what happens. Yeah, in the short run, a dirty diaper is no fun. <laughs> right. But, but, but being but able to go to a nicer... But uh, them changing your dirty diaper yeah, when you you're go, 85. Exactly. <laughs> it can be a long effect. When you're, when you're old, you're, you're much happier to have children. Yeah. Other thing, I mean, to kind of jump back into some some theological discussions, you know, since since I'm talking to a, a Lutheran here as well, you know, Luther has a book called The Bondage of the Will. Yeah. And I think that this this produces this, and, and actually the, the, the Bible itself talks a lot about there being freedom in Christ. Right. And if you have a, depending on your theology of the fall and how, how big of a problem sin is, you know, I think Luther mentioned that you know we're basically you're bound to sin if yeah. you're not a christian you are bound to sin you have to sin it's only in christ that we get the choice to sin or not yep right. you you yeah you you don't have free will in that sense um you can't choose righteousness you Correct. can't yeah you can't consistently choose righteousness um you are a sinner and you're going to sin so this is this is kind of one of the running themes along the <laughs> podcast for those of you who have been listening since day one but you know i mean i and so i've never read luther's stuff but i think you know in the conversations that we've had that have brought this out i mean of course i would i would differ uh, as a catholic on the free will question but i think the other difference too would be just the idea of what does freedom mean right so like the sort of classical liberal notion of freedom is just sort of like your ability to do whatever you want, right? Absence of constraints. Right, the absence of constraints. And that's where we're thinking about this in like a very mechanistic kind of uh, economic way of thinking. Sounds like that. But I think, you know, just having read some stuff on, you know, the concept of freedom and liberty, it's more like 
freedom is the ability to choose the good, right? So like love is to will the good of another, right? So freedom is not your ability to have zero constraints on your behavior. It's your ability to choose things that come from God, right? God being the ground of all being, the, the efficient cause, that sort of thing. And so I, I just think it's kind of interesting how there's different, some of these words mean different things in, in, in different contexts. Yeah, I think the, the law and gospel distinction is what was big for Luther, that as you look at the themes in the Bible, you can highlight as you go through the Bible, what's law and what's gospel, you know, what sets you free and what, what condemns you. And so uh, I think where we have some differences is that all of the to-do lists in the Bible, whether Old Testament or New Testament, is the law condemning you so that everybody reads that book and says, oh, I'm screwed. And that then turns you to Christ so that your sins are blotted out so that when you go on judgment day, Jesus says, I got your back because you can't choose righteousness. Your most righteous deeds are filthy rags, right? We can't bring down God. There's an infinite gap between humanity and God and we'll never get there. And so I, I think where my theology comes in is you don't have to do anything. So what are you going to do? Right. And that's where we kind of have our disputes. Are we, uh, I think where some Christians maybe in some cases go wrong. And I don't mean this in terms of bad for society or necessarily bad for them, but ultimately might turn people from the faith is to think that there's always that burden of, Oh, what should I do now? How can I please God? And it's like, you can't fulfill it. There's no way that you could fulfill it day in and day out. God knows that you're pathetic. And so accept that. And through that is true freedom, baby. That's where the freedom lies because now you're free. You're a, you're a member of the God, of God's family. The prodigal son comes back screwed up and he's welcome with open arms, no matter what you did. Well, so speaking of um, absolutely fundamental disagreements between uh, the two primary <laughs> hosts on the podcast, uh, yeah, so we've, we've been talking a lot lately, I think, in our recent episodes about kind of classical liberalism or, uh, you know, sort of more individualistic kind of perspective versus a more communitarian or um, localist. Ayn um, Rand versus Marx. Hey, no. I don't think we're at those Marx, polar ends. Marx was a Marx was a liberal, okay? so I, I'm not taking Marx's mantle. That's for sure. So, Jeremy, just to let you know, next week Russ and I are going to have a debate on <laughs> on whether or not it, it's it's a bad thing to buy local. Buy local, right? So Russ is going to take the affirmative and say that it's bad to buy local, and I am going to be the negative. And so I'm really t excited. We've been fight of know, the century. We've been talking about it, you know, talking crap to each other the whole time, <laughs> last two weeks. But so I, I actually am really interested in the second paper that we want to look at, which is uh, economic freedom and social capital. So what? I guess maybe start off by telling us like what? How are you defining social capital in this paper? And and then maybe talk about kind of how you saw again, this economic freedom measure, you know, the size of the government and labor market freedom and things like that, how that interacted with this idea of social capital. Sure. So like any good economist with this paper, I, I did not define social capital. I looked to somebody else to define yeah, it. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> That's a good idea. So the paper used an existing index of social capital. This index 
used information on how how involved people were in various community groups. Um, so it was a combination of survey data from a number of sources. So voluntary associations, but also looked at your political activity, how often you voted, um, where did you participate in political campaigns, some things like that. Is this state by state? Like the, within the, the states, the fraction of number of people in groups or something, or? So, so there's a whole paper, like I said, that, that created this, uh, this measure oh. of social capital, and it was not, I did not create the index, but, but it's, it's, it is a state-based measure of social capital, okay. and, and again, it's dynamic, so it, it was part of the uniqueness of this data was that it, it could be used in a panel, a dynamic panel setting. So in other words, it would change over time over and time. across states. Exactly. Right. So that, that's, that's how people should understand that. So this, this one, that, that measure that you're talking about that you borrowed from another paper was from 1986 to 2004 across all of the states, right? So for our listeners, that's how you should think about this. Because you have data for every state in every year from 1986 to 2004. And ideally, it's a bucket of social capital of, of human interactions in various ways that we're trying to measure. Do, do some states have more of these social cohesion ties than others? Is that what it's trying to tease out? Well, and I, I view social capital partly through the lens of collective action problems. Mm -hmm. um, I view social capital as one of the means that allows us to overcome collective action problem, collective action problems, mm -hmm. sure. enables us to cooperate um, right. in, in instances where it seems like we shouldn't be able to cooperate. Uh -huh. Little man for Olson. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And Olson might pop up in some other ways as we kind of talk about this paper some more too, but social capital has some other, other things to it as well in that it's also a way that we, we get insurance. Mm -hmm. I, you know, especially I live in North Dakota. I have zero family here. I, you know, when my child gets sick, who's going to help me watch my children? Right. So there's this other aspect of social capital. That's do you have a community of people around you that can come and help right. you in those instances when you need it? So, you know, there's kind of those two separate, separate aspects. And so, and, and so some states are better than that. I'm thinking like the South for some reason, like they would be more maybe tighter groups and voluntary efforts or is, do you have any comments on regionally in the United States on, are there certain states that seem to have better social capital? North However, Dakota's got great social capital. They do. They, they got to they got to huddle close together yeah, to stay all, warm. All so. half a million of them in that giant <laughs> expanse of well, so plains. There's a number of, there's a number of very you know, interesting things that pop out of looking at disparities in social capital. One of them is that for instance, racial homogeneity, religious homogeneity mm -hmm. are both big predictors. Mm -hmm. um, places that have, people who are all like one another tend to have more social capital than places that, that don't. And that's, that is one of the, I think the, the difficult things for a liberal society. And I don't mean liberal in, in terms of, you know, maybe political, liberal. right. Individual. Liberal. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Pe where people are different and we want to value the rights of everybody. It's, it's very difficult then, you know, for those places to have high social capital because there's just, there's lots of people that, aren't exactly like you. Well, and we, and we saw just to, as an aside here. So we, we showed, we, had, we were one of four places in North America to do an early showing of the pursuit, which is um, the American Enterprise Institute's uh, newest documentary with, with Arthur Brooks. 
And he talked about that when he talked about Denmark, I think. Yep. And he was talking about, you know, that's where his family is from. And he was talking about how, you know, the, the sort of Bernie and AOC democratic socialist types, they really like that model of, you know, a very high welfare state, but they don't talk so much about the low business regulation they have there, but you know, whatever. But he talked about the fact that, you know, the way they're able to do that is because there's only, you know, 5 million people in the whole country right. and they're all exactly alike. You know, they're all either some kind of Protestant or atheist and they're all the same height and they're, you know, yeah. <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. And so you have to have that dramatic social cohesion to have this collective action, things like, you know, a 50% effective tax rate and all that sort of thing. And even when that was in place, they brought up that it, life isn't perfect. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that they still have uh, issues that they have to deal with, so. Well, the, the overall question that we were trying to answer, actually there's a series of two papers that I published on this topic using the same data set, was really a question of does economic freedom enhance civil society as we measure it there, or is it going to destroy it? We, we kind of found in, in those papers that it really seemed to, to basically have no effect. So economic freedom wasn't destroying civil society or social cohesion, but it also wasn't really promoting it. Hmm. Um, Interesting. And that was across the states, not, you didn't go international with that. That was using U.S. state data. Yeah, U.S. state data. Huh. Interesting. So it's kind of one of these things where it's almost like maybe, maybe it's the other way around. So like if, if you if you got social cohesion that was was really close together or really loose, you know, real, a, a big lack of social cohesion or social capital, that maybe do you think that maybe if you got more to the extreme ends of that, that that might actually have an impact on the freedom aspects of it? Like in other words, sort of things would go the other direction, where like you know, for example, if everybody sort of has a lot of social capital and they're all very similar and stuff, they're okay with having no low regulations right. and not having a minimum wage because they just kind of trust each other sort of thing. Uh, Cause that seems to be the Sweden thing, right? They have really low business regulation because they're just not worried about it because everybody's kind of, they're all buddies or whatever. Oh, well there's, there's a variety of things we can talk about here. So there's really no clear, clear reason that economic freedom should necessarily impact social capital one way or the other. For instance, I mean, having, the fact that when you have more government spending that you have more government providing you with with social services means we we probably don't need as much social social capital to produce right. these types of like the type of insurance that I was talking yeah about. a little crowding out type effect right so so there's there's beliefs that economic freedom could could increase social capital partly because we think that social capital is developed as people interact in the marketplace i buy something hey this is a this is an argument for go local i buy something from a business owner um we develop relationships we develop ties through these types of of interactions and trade and that's part of how trust you know you can't trade with somebody you don't trust yeah so this is one part of how how we develop trust and which was the argument for international peace actually back in the whatever uh what was it called guy with the name of an m back in the 30s with the smooth tariffs smooth well, I mean, tariffs you, i think you have but more he experience. Wrote the thing, yeah he wrote it saying basically that that international trade will help foster peace right among countries well, as i think well. I, you so that more, goes right down to the micro level basically of what what you're just saying i think i think you have more experience with the 30s than i do russ so <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna lean on you for <laughs> easy <laughs> oh 1971 <laughs> so <laughs> well great i i think that's 
Yeah, anything else to wrap up, Jeremy? Otherwise, we're, we're probably getting close to winding things down. That was great. Yeah, oh, there's a few other things I could say, but they'll probably take us a long time to talk about. Okay, well, we'll have to, you know what, that's great, because we'll just have to have another episode with Jeremy on to talk about expanding some of this stuff about social capital and economic freedom. I think it's neat for our listeners to know that we have economists that are looking at stuff like social capital. Like we, we attempt to measure things like that, you know, because uh, most people look at economics and think we're just GDP and numbers and dollar signs or something, and so... Economics is really about all the choices we have and the world we live and the institutions we create and economists study anything dealing with human beings and those choices. So with that, looks like a good place to wrap Uh, for all our listeners. Be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.